Hello, my name is Eva, and welcome to part seven, the concluding episode of The Anarchy. It is the year 1149, that sly old fox, Ranulph of Chester, he of Lincoln Castle and in constant loyalty, is once again going behind King Stephen's back. This year sees Ranulph of Chester sealing an agreement with Henry Fitz Empress, the eldest son of Empress Matilda. How in the world did it come to this? Well, Empress Matilda's son was, in our modern minds, still a teenager of 16 years in 1149. But amongst his contemporaries, he had by this time already gained a reputation as an active, ambitious, and able leader. He had left England rather ingloriously in 1147 after his failed invasion, but he now returned in 1149 to a very warm reception from many lords who saw him as a way to end the anarchy and secure the much longed for peace. It was Henry himself who negotiated with Ranulph of Chester, and a deal was struck between an old fox and a new one that Ranulph would give up some of his long held claims on the land that King Stephen had given to the Scots. Ranulph would pay homage to Henry and David, King of Scotland, and he would fight for Henry's bid for control of England. Henry and Ranulph planned a joint venture to capture York. However, Stephen learned of it and reinforced the defence of the city. So Henry Fitz Empress returned to Normandy to take up the dukedom of Normandy from his father, who abdicated in his favour. His mother, Empress Matilda, was already in Normandy and would remain there for the duration of the anarchy that for all intents and purposes was slowly petering out. But although the more powerful barons made individual peace agreements to not fight each other and reduce the building of fortresses around contested castles, this did not mean that other people were relieved of the suffering that years of strife and conflict had caused. Contemporary chroniclers recount the immigration of a number of well-skilled craftsmen and others who could afford to move to other lands, especially Normandy, in order to remove themselves from the consequences of mercenaries roaming the countryside, bad harvests, or too few men to collect the harvests and the general lawlessness of a kingdom under constant siege. By the late 1140s, commoners and nobles alike were done with a civil war that seemed to have no end in sight. For though Stephen had gained ground through the mid-1140s, Empress Matilda's strongholds in the southwest and in Normandy could not be decisively defeated. 
So battle-weary minds turned increasingly to the younger generation. Might they fulfill the hopes of peace that so many yearned for? King Stephen had an heir apparent, his eldest son, Eustace, born in 1129 or 1131. No precise recording survives of his birth. At the age of 10, Eustace was married to Constance of France, the 13-year-old sister of Louis VII of France, a then-ally of his father, Stephen. By 1151, Eustace was embroiled in attacks against his second cousin, Henry Fitzempress's Duchy of Normandy. This must have caused great concern with those battle-weary lords of England. Was this an omen that the civil war fought, fought so fruitlessly by their parents would now be adopted and prolonged by the offspring? The French king Louis VII would save them from that particular fate for he chose in 1152 to receive the homage of Henry Fitzempress and was thereafter an ally of Normandy rather than of Stephen, and the English-led attacks petered out thereafter. And as Eustace returned to England, his father, King Stephen, focused on having Eustace recognized as his heir. In 1152, Stephen manipulated several barons to swear fealty to Eustace. Though it was said many pledged their allegiance reluctantly, for Eustace, well, he was known as a good enough soldier, but he was not known as a man to inspire confidence as a future leader. It is in fact remarkable that the life and times of Eustace were not embellished or recorded in any detail on the pages of the chronicles that have survived. This was, after all, the young man recognized as heir apparent to an anointed king, and his progress towards the crown should have been of interest to many. His father's cousin, William Adelin, the late heir to Henry I, was much talked about and much written about during his life and after his drowning in 1120, but there seems to be no detailed accounts of the court and men surrounding Eustace, and the reports about him were, even in his own day, ambivalent. While the 12th century monks who wrote the Peterborough Chronicler accused Eustace of being a ravager of the land, that sentiment, while quite possibly true, might also have been born out of Eustace's raids and confiscation of church property. For the anonymous chronicler of the Digesta Stefani well, he painted an altogether different picture of Eustace as a young man of courtly manner and bearing. We today shall never know the truth, but we can only suspect that the truth perhaps lay somewhere between these two 
mentioned portrayals. But whether weak or strong, amiable or curt, King Stephen would have seen Eustace crowned while he himself lived. This was an old French tradition, but was frowned upon by the church in England, and try as they might, Stephen and Eustace could not induce the Pope or the bishops to approve this, and consequently the Archbishop of Canterbury, Theobald of Beck, refused to hold the crown over Eustace's head. If Stephen's relationship to the church had been rocky at times, Theobald of Beck's refusal led to such animosity between church and crown that Stephen and Eustace seized the bishop, several of his bishops, and imprisoned them with threats to keep them in chains until they did as their king commanded. If you recall, in December 1136, Stephen had, upon his arrival in London following the death of Henry I, made a promise to the church that he would not interfere in their affairs. Now, 16 years later, Stephen was king and had grown to heartily dislike the clergy's urge for independence. They chose me. Why then do they abandon me? Stephen was supposed to have said about a great number of men, including those of the cloth. And though he shouted, raged, and imprisoned those who made him shout and rage, Eustace was never crowned, and Eustace, well, he went back to raid and plunder, and this would be the death of him, as he was killed during an attack on the Abbey of Bury St. Edmunds in Suffolk. While his father wept, Others whispered of God's rightful vengeance on a miscreant. Divine retribution or not, Eustace had been vocal in his opposition to any truce between his father and Henry Fitz Empress, as Eustace held firm to his father's old dream of full victory over the opposing side. But now, his voice was silenced, and for the wider population, a glimmer of hope was turned in that perpetual night of the anarchy, for Eustace's death left only one serious contender for the position as heir to King Stephen, Henry Fitz Empress. And I might, at this very late stage in the series, just mention that the ancient Norman prefix Fitz simply means son of, as Henry was known and recognized as the son of the empress who had fought for the crown. Henry Fitz Empress had, as mentioned in part six, returned to England and quickly gained widespread support. He was in an, in an alliance with David, King of Scotland. He had the resources of the Duchy of Normandy at his disposal. And when he married Eleanor of Aquitaine on the 18th of May, 1152, he gained access to her vast wealth from her inheritance of the Duchy of Aquitaine. 
In fact, with his own domains combined with hers, Henry controlled a far larger portion of France than the French king. It is not within the scope of this series to talk about the amazing life of Henry and Eleanor. But if you are interested, I would highly recommend the book Eleanor of Aquitaine by the Wrath of God by the historian Alice Weir. Henry, already a seasoned warrior, took the fight to Stephen when the latter once again attempted to capture towns and land around Oxford that had stood firm for his rival since the early days of civil war. Henry attacked Stephen's hastily built counter castles surrounding the great bastion of Wallingford Castle near Oxford. But as soldiers and civilians alike braced for another chapter in the now 15-year-long conflict, Stephen and Henry were convinced by their respective allies to agree to a truce in the spring of 1153. It was this truce that Eustace had opposed, but following his death on August the 17th of that same year, a formal agreement was settled at Winchester, and this Treaty of Winchester was read and ratified in Westminster at year's end. Men at arms on each side still fought and died after this. But by November 1153, a permanent peace was agreed. The main point of the Treaty of Winchester were read aloud by Stephen himself in Westminster Cathedral, and in a solemn voice he pronounced, Henry as his heir and successor. And this was over the claims of Stephen's remaining son, William. Stephen declared that he would remain unchallenged under the throne until his death. He royal castles would be held for Henry, while Stephen would have access to Henry's holdings if he should need them. While a collective sigh of relief could be heard across the battle-trodden pastures of England, the Treaty of Winchester did not eliminate all the existing tensions that could so easily have led to a renewal of fighting. There was the question of the many, many lords who had switched sides time and again, not out of personal conviction, but rather to take advantage of the anarchy and seize power and property from their rivals. What justice, if any, could be meted out to these men whose loyalty was still needed? There was the problem of the mercenaries still roaming and raiding the countryside. They would have to be paid off or sent out of the kingdom. But how? Though the Treaty of Winchester named Henry Fitz Empress as King Stephen's heir, Stephen himself could have lived many years and Henry Fitz Empress might not have survived to take the throne. In fact, during 1153 54, 
rumor circulated that William, Stephen's son, conspired to poison Henry. Though this conspiracy turned out to be unfounded, Henry himself was less concerned with Stephen's son, with whom he later formed a tolerable relationship. For in the aftermath of the Treaty of Winchester, various conflicts broke out once again in and around Normandy that compelled him to return to Normandy in order to further cement his control of his own duchy. So while the Treaty of Winchester did not in itself usher in an immediate and permanent peace, it did bring out the best of King Stephen's qualities, in particular quick physical action. From December 1154, he embarked on a vigorous procession across his kingdom, spending time in the southwest, making old enemies into new friends as he stayed in the castles that only recently had been held for his rival and he travelled to the northern regions to stamp a strong royal presence in that volatile area. As Stephen continued from north to south, he fell ill and was markedly sick by the time he reached Dover in the autumn of 1154. After settling his private affairs, Stephen, King of England, died on the 25th of October, 1154, and was buried at Faversham Abbey in Kent, alongside his son Eustace and his wife Matilda, who had died in 1152. Upon King Stephen's death, Henry Fitz Empress returned to England on the 8th of December, 19 years to the day after Stephen had entered London and secretly secured the city's aid in seizing the crown of England ahead of Henry's mother, Matilda. But Henry's entry to London was an open, festive affair, with commoners and lords alike cheering for the young man about to be crowned king. All those who witnessed the anointing of Henry a few days later wished for one thing only, that peace would triumph over the decades-long anarchy. In April 1155, the Anglo-Norman barons gathered at Henry II's court and swore fealty to him, and with this the civil war formally ended. So, who won the conflict? Well, the answer differs according to the chosen perspective. Strictly speaking, Stephen never relinquished his crown. He was never dethroned, and he remained King Stephen until his last breath. However, Despite having one living male heir, it was not his son, but Matilda's, who was crowned King of England after Stephen's death. But Matilda had, for the better part of the conflict, fought for her own claim to the crown, and it was only in 1147 that she switched to supporting her son's right to inherit the throne. This she did unconditionally and loyally, 
And indeed, she remained a trusted advisor to her son for the remainder of her life. Matilda died on the 10th of September, 1167, and was mourned by her son, Henry II, who throughout his life frequently called himself Fitz Empress, son of the Empress. With this evidence, there is an argument to be made that Matilda ultimately won the conflict, for it was her son who was crowned Henry II, and it was her descendants that ruled England until 1485. The first years of Henry II's rule generally met the broad expectations of his people. He expelled the mercenaries, he settled disputes concerning castles, ruined or seized by various lords, and by the 1160s had once again centralised the minting of coin and England was well on its way to financial recovery. While his late uncle's stronghold around Bristol had been largely left unscathed by the Civil War, Many parts of the north and eastern areas of England needed rebuilding, and with renewed wealth, Henry II invested in the regrowth of crops and trade. But in time, Henry II, just like his uncle, his mother and his grandfather before him, fell afoul of the church, which resulted in one of England's most infamous murders which was instigated, so it is told, when Henry, one December evening, roared to his men, What miserable drones and traitors have I nourished and promoted in my household, who let their lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a low-born clerk? These words caused four of Henry's knights to gallop to Canterbury, and there, put Archbishop Thomas Becket to the blade on the 29th of December, 1170. Unsurprisingly, this did not solve any of Henry's problems. On the contrary, it turned him into an enemy of the church and might have had something to do with his son's great revolt in 1173 when they openly and in hostile fashion revolted against their father and were supported by their mother, Henry's wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine. So, Henry II's rule was as tumultuous as Stephen's ever was, and he left an English kingdom to his son, Richard I, known as the Lionheart that would continue to be contested and fought over until the death of the last Plantagenet in 1485. The legacy of the anarchy was felt for generations, and even here, in 2022, it is an endlessly fascinating story, a true proof that fiction has nothing on reality. This was an era of so many what-ifs. What if 
Stephen had not disembarked from the white ship on that cold November's evening in 1120 and had drowned together with William of Adeline. What if William of Adeline had survived the sinking of the white ship? Would there then have been other claimants to the throne? Might his half-brother, Robert of Gloucester, have fought William for the crown? The one what-if that even contemporaries pondered was, might Stephen have ruled wisely and in peace had he struck against Empress Matilda when first she landed in England in September 1139 instead of allowing her safe passage? We have only the evidence time and history has afforded us, and we have the stories saved in the documents saved through time. But it is with our minds we might imagine a time so different from our own, and through it perhaps learn of that which is unique and that which is perpetual. Grief, anger, avarice, the bloody grasp for power and the willful power of chance. And with this, I end this first history series. I really want to thank those who have just discovered this series and this podcast. Welcome on board. And I want to give a huge, huge thanks to those who have followed this series from the start. I am very grateful for your weekly returns. Until next time, I have been Eva, and thank you so much for listening.